0: For those of you who are regularly in my audience, this is going to take some splaining, right? Like, why am I talking to a folk musician when normally this lives related by, particularly in the area of leadership or in the area of customer experience, delivery design and, you know, best authors and that type of folks. So, well, the answer is really simple because this is someone who absolutely inspires me from the standpoint of creativity and leveraging their talents to express themselves. So with that in mind, I introduce you to someone in the folk world, just to make a slight transition for you. I was a talk show host on radio for more than a decade in Colorado Springs, Colorado, afternoon drive. And because of a long passion as a musician and someone who really appreciates well-crafted, I think poignant use of words, I've always gravitated to folk musicians and many of whom, when they would come through in Colorado Springs, they would maybe be playing up in Denver or, you know, in somewhere in Colorado Springs, I would interview them and got to become friends with some of my favorites like David Wilcox and and Cheryl Wheeler. And because of that, I've always looking for folk musicians whenever they come to my town now in Florida. And it just so happened once upon a time, I was looking in a newspaper and. There was by this lady named Tracy Grammer. I hadn't heard of her personally, so I thought I would take a chance. And now, if she's anywhere within driving distance, which has been a while since anybody's been performing within driving distance of me, but. If she's anywhere near driving distance, and when she is going to be in driving distance again, she will certainly be the first person I want to go see. Tracy Grammer, thank you for joining me in this really weird world of business author meets <laughs> folk musician.
1: <laughs> thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> All right, well, so let's kind of start back, a ways back. You, your creative art started, I would think, really early, earlier on, but maybe got manifest in your college choice to go to Berkeley and and write and study
1: literature? You know, that's interesting. Um, I don't think, it started at Berkeley, but not in the way that you think. It was really, um, I had always played music since I was like nine years old. I, and I grew up in a musical household and um, had violin and guitar and singing kind of, you know, I did that in school and played in orchestras and stuff like that. And I did go to Berkeley thinking that I would join the chamber groups there playing violin. Uh, classical violin, and I didn't get in. And uh, they offered me a spot in the symphony, and I remember thinking, oh, no, <laughs> the symphony is too big. I like the interaction of, you know, I like to be able to hear each player because all the orchestras I'd been in, for the most part, were small. And so what did happen for me at Berkeley, though, was, uh, and I was there for a long time, I was on the eight-and-a-half-year plan for my BA, um, is that I I met a boy, <laughs> a guitar player. And it was when he got me into his uh, studio and we formed a little band and I started to see what was possible with mixing and producing. Um, I started playing a little keyboard. I got my violin back out again after a nine year hiatus. Um, that's when things started to move for me. But it wasn't because of UC Berkeley as such, unless you right, well, say, right. unless that rejection is part of it, which it is, you know.
0: I was rejected from the University of California, Los Angeles. So, you know, we have something in common there at least. Uh, Well, that boy uh, did have a pretty profound impact in your life. Let's take a little look at you slightly younger, not much, but slightly younger and that boy. All right, I stopped it right after we got to hear that violin that you uh, didn't have to play in the orchestra as much as you could play <laughs> in that intimate setting. Let's talk a little bit about Dave Carter. Uh, because the first time I saw you, most everything you did was a Dave Carter song. Uh, by the second time, That's right. and we'll talk about a little more of that in a minute, but uh, let's talk about Dave Carter.
1: Well, I do wanna, I just wanna scroll back a little bit. That's not the boy.
2: <laughs> no. Oh no. my gosh.
1: there, there were actually, there's a series of three daves you know how that book is called three cups of tea i should just call my book three Daves" because <laughs> that was the path the first the first one was a prom date but so he doesn't count he wasn't wow a musician, i was.
0: mean this is the dave that i know so i can't wait to hear the pre-daves yeah. the dave one yeah, and dave there,
1: two dave number two is the one i met at berkeley and he's the one who got me doing music and uh you know got me in the studio and it's when he moved to portland and I followed. That's when I met Dave Carter was three weeks after I had I, arrived in Portland. And I had a premonition that I was going to meet somebody there. And it was on the strength of that premonition and not necessarily the strength of my relationship with Dave number two, which was faltering at that point <laughs> that I moved. And so, yeah, yeah. So I met Dave Carter in Portland um, in 1996. All right.
0: So, So, all right. Let's uh, now that I've got my Daves in an or in a row. um, You can
1: keep track,
0: right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, This Dave had a profound impact on you. Uh, And, you know, Dave Carter really was a force in folk music. And you were you were definitely connected in a powerful way. Can you want to talk a little bit about that musical influence for you and generally an influence on your career development?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, there really wouldn't have been a career, I don't think, without Dave Carter. Um, We were kind of, um, we came together in this really unusual and perfect balance. Um, Dave Carter, I always liken him to the nutty professor. You know, he just had idea after idea after idea popping out of his head, always writing songs, but not necessarily the most organized person. Didn't, I don't think he really had a handle on how to grow his you know, his audience, he was playing little showcases around town and stuff like that. And when I joined, I was really just a violinist in the band, there was a five piece band for a little while. But I had certain skills, like I had some corporate communications, I had graphic design. And so I just started like, you know, making little flyers and making posters and, you know, starting to look at bookings and getting things organized, building databases, stuff like that. And so there's kind of this business head met this creative head. And then I think over time we both just sort of crisscrossed and he, you know, grokked the business a little better. And I obviously flourished on the creative side. Um, And it was a really beautiful sort of one plus one equals three situation um, with Dave Carter. But, you know, I came, I came into the relationship with Dave Carter with, with a huge love of words, Shakespeare, poetry, obviously, like you said, I studied literature at UC Berkeley Um, and everything about Dave Carter's music moved me. I mean, his aggressive use of language, the mythological component, the mystical component, and then just like the straight up country nature of it, which um, sort of spoke to my my upbringing, all of it resonated with me in a really deep way. And it was intuitive for me to sing along and play along, really, it it, it wasn't ever yeah. worth
0: you know, it, there is such a magic, and, and I think that clip that we just played really reflects it. I mean, the harmonies were extraordinary. His guitar playing was extraordinary. You know, being able to to play the violin and integrate that into it—it it just was exceptional. This um, was something that was pretty profound for you. I would just—is that something you feel comfortable talking about? I mean, kind of given. The, that abrupt loss of him, how that affected your career?
1: Oh, um, <laughs> it's, it's the defining moment of my career, really. I mean, there's the moment I met Dave Carter and that whole adventure started. Uh, but yeah, when he died, um, I mean, I had already been on a mission and the mission was to make sure everybody heard Dave Carter's song. So that was the mission when he was alive. So when he died, the mission was essentially unchanged, though the personnel was obviously not going to be the same. It was gonna be down to me to do this, me and our fans. So um, the work of that is has been my career. And only recently, you know, maybe the last five or six years, has it shifted a little bit more towards songwriting and my own creative endeavors, but essentially For the first decade, anyway, I was on a path, you know, Dave Carter, everybody listen, everybody sing, you know, that was my, that was my rallying cry. That was my, my MO and my guiding, my guiding thing.
0: So help me understand what was the transition? Because as I intimated, the first time I heard you, it was clearly that that's what I heard at a place called Sacred Lands uh, in in St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, The next time I saw you, I think, was at a small uh, art studio. And you were starting to play some of the music that I heard you writing in Real Women Real Song and kind of almost woodshedding that a bit out in live concert venues. So tell me a little bit about that transition for you.
1: Yeah, well, um, in the beginning with Dave Carter, I was a side person. Essentially, every now and then I would sing the lead on a song and he was kind of going in that direction, uh, writing more songs for my voice. Um, and he used to always say that he wanted to go live in a trailer and write and send me out to sing. And so in some ways, and I've said this a lot in my shows, I feel like he sort of fished his wish in a weird in a weird way, and he could be in some heavenly trailer somewhere, and here I am singing, just like he wanted. But I had no experience as a solo performer. I had no experience. Uh, I didn't know how to play those songs on guitar. I didn't know how to entertain an audience, have any kind of banter. Um, didn't know how, how to hire a side man, you know? Like I didn't know anything except how to sing along. And uh, And so it was really just love that pulled me through the eye of that needle and the grace of my fans who watched me stumble quite a bit on the path until I really found my footing. And then also, just what kind of
0: stumble? Come on, you can't leave a stumble line out there without me having to find out where did you stumble?
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, my very first show out of the gate was this um, kind of like a girl power show out here in Massachusetts. And I remember flying myself. I was living in Oregon at the time. I flew myself first class because I was like, this is it. This is your moment. Treat yourself with respect. You've been on tour with Joan Baez. You're not nobody. Let's go do this. You've been practicing. You're ready. It's only four songs. You got it. You know? so i I flew myself out there <laughs> i I was the first one up and the least one known, and it was like uh, who was on the bill? It was the Neelss um and uh oh God, I can see her face uh, and she does the uh, I, I Ju- actually just... julie gold okay, and good. and she twirls the batons who which one is that <laughs> <laughs> I, I totally know it. her, I, Christine I it's Lavin. Yes. It's Christine Lavin, of course.
0: So, anyways, yeah, what was the, the "Red Roses from the Wrong Man" or something? I said it's really a wonderful Lavin song out there. Too.
1: I'm so embarrassed that I couldn't remember her name. I love her, anyway, and she's she's masterful. But I was up first, and I got up on stage, and um, you know, I started playing "Ordinary Town," which is a song that was one of my songs it wasn't like I took on a Dave song but I did have to learn the guitar so I start playing and like I miss the bass note of the chord on the guitar and I I think oh that's bad I'm gonna just start over you know I I felt bad about it I wanted to start over started over started playing it got the chords right then I dropped a lyric I couldn't remember the lyric and I I said right into the mic and everybody just got like really tense Yeah. They just got really tense. And I didn't know at that time how to own my nervousness and just say, you guys, I'm freaking out, which is what I would do today. You know, I would just say, I don't even know what's happening right now. I'm so nervous. I didn't know how to say that. I thought I had this thing to uphold. And I thought that Dave was somewhere in the rafters watching me, expecting me to be great. And I was expecting myself to be great for him and flawless. And I wasn't. And I, I got through the set, but at the end it was like, people were really uncomfortable, you know? And I remember at yeah. one point looking over onto the side of the stage and it was like the heads of all the other women were stacked up like this cheerleader totem pole. And they were, and I remember Katrina kneeled, she was just like, like you can do it. You know?
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> and I was just, you know, and I just felt so bad and I came off the stage and I, I, uh, I went in the back and I was just, you know, tears were falling as I'm wrapping up my gear and the kneels are on stage now. and Julie Gold came up to me and she tapped me on the shoulder and turned me around. And, and we started talking and, and then she said she had something she wanted to give me. And I was like, you know, and and so she reaches into her pocket and she said that it was something that she had kept with her during her battle with cancer. And she wanted me to have it now. And she put it in my hand. And I remember looking down and there was this little stone, like my hand is all sweaty. It's like rivers of sweat. And there's a stone in there and on the stone, it says the word courage. Hmm. And I, we both just like, you know, we both just wept. I still have the stone. I'm, look, I'm looking for the next person who needs it, you know. Um, but that was my beginning was just like, this is going to be a long road. I'm not going to get it right. I just face planted in front of several hundred people. And at the end of the day, it didn't kill me. You know, it was rough <laughs> and I didn't like it one bit. But um, but I would go on to do that, you know, time and time again until I could finally own making mistakes and just say that this is part of the process. You know, getting up and doing the best I can and, and knowing that, you know, for that whole first year, it was just very rough, very rough. And also, you know, compounding the problem was that every time I got on stage in a new town, it would be the first time that audience was seeing me without Dave. And so not only was I bringing this material that was new to me to play, to share with them, but I was also introducing to them the reality of the loss. And I used to joke that I was like the conductor of the grief train, just, you know, blowing through town after town, like all aboard. Let's all cry. Let's get it out. You know.
0: <laughs> Who yeah. have you lost? Yeah. Are you feeling That's the sadness right. of Dave? Yeah. 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 So that, that was. Well
1: Yeah, that was you know what I love about
0: your story, you know, that that story speaks to the fact that we have skill sets, but there are all these other things we need to acquire on our journey to to go on different paths, right? I mean, for you, that path of being a solo artist was neatly equipped to do, and it took some learning and some kind people along the way to nudge definitely Gee, yeah. speaking of kind people let me just at least drop some of these kind people into our conversation we got a hello from new jersey these are all your fans i'm sure of it hello from uh, new jersey we've got a hello from maine we got all kinds of good yay. people who are joining us today and and other people making all kinds of kind wishes immense uh, as well and we'll we'll integrate some of those along our conversation uh, today uh, tracygrammer.com place to go to learn more about her learn more about her music but let's uh Let's kind of transition from this career move into being a solo artist I that speak your own to the universe. Not that it's bad to cover other people's songs, but uh, mm-hmm. this is a shift in your career tra- trajectory. What, what allowed you to say, okay, Tracy, it's time for you to write a song?
1: Well, you know, fans, friends loved ones had been saying this for quite a long time when are you gonna write songs when are you gonna write songs and in 2004 i did write one and i put it out on an ep called the verdant mile and um and people were like oh that's great you know and <laughs> do more and i was like oh, that's okay i got all these other good songs to sing but in 2000 end of 2013 uh, a fellow songwriter by the name of carrie cooper got in touch with me and she was putting together this group of women Um, uh, to be part of a songwriting challenge called Real Women, Real Songs. And um, it was 21 women from all across the United States. And she said, I'd really like you to join us. And I said, Carrie, I'm not really a songwriter. You know, I looked at the list of women and I'm like, I can't keep up with that. What is she talking about? Write a song a week for an entire year. I've written one and that took me 30 years to cough up. So, you know, I said, I don't know, Carrie, I don't think I can do that. You know, I said you know, I've only written one song. She said, yeah, I know about that one. I'm like, that's it, you know? But she she schooled me a little bit. She's like, girl, it is time. She said, you need to get out from behind that Dave Carter shadow and step out. And I was like, ah, geez, you know? She wasn't the first person to say it. She wasn't the last person to say it. And so I signed on. And um, at the time, it just so happened for the 2014 was let's make sure
0: people really understand what signing on means, right? It means you're going to get a prompt every week. right? And you're going to just bring your creative energy to that prompt and produce a song in that week. Yeah. This is, this is cruel and torturous (laughs) signing on you went from one song in four years to a commitment of a song a week, but okay, go
1: ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know what I was thinking, except that, uh, 2014 was very rough for me. Um, I lost my dad in 2013, and that was a, a complicated relationship. And in 2014, my engagement to a lovely man was imploding. Um, I had been dropped by my booking agent, like just all sorts of chaos was, you know. And so I may not have known really what I was doing, like how to write a song, but I had plenty to say and process. And so somehow, um, all of that got me through. And, and I was able to, um, you know, all the questions that I had about that moment found their way into songs, which I think is uh, a key to what we're doing in art anyway, is we're answering the questions that our souls really need, ans- you know, that our souls are shivering with. Um, and so that's, that's how I wrote my first, I, I didn't write all 52 that year, Um, No, you,
0: you, you pulled up lame about what, a quarter of the way in or something.
1: Yeah. At 17, I jumped ship. I was, I was done because that's the point when I moved out of the house where everything was kind of falling apart. I got my own place, everything settled down and in that calm and in that peace, I had nothing I I couldn't write. And so,
0: you know, I, I think that every week, I mean, and there were some incredibly talented people and I know I was tuning in every week and, checking out my favorites and checking out people that I really didn't like just to see kind of what was going on in their creative process with regard to prompts. And didn't like meaning that from my personal taste, they weren't singing something that I could connect with, but, mm-hmm. but, but your stuff every week was amazing. And one of the songs I want to share with the audience who, again, doesn't know your music is, we'll just do part of it. How about that? Uh, part okay. of one of your prompts, it speaks to that complicated relationship with your dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, the prompt I think was satisfied if yeah. I remember and um, we'll play a little bit of this for you to hear, Tracy. And, and the beauty of it is this is your weekly production of this song. Like So within a week, you'd written it, you'd produced it, you have gotten it so that it was uploaded on YouTube. And we'll talk a little bit about the, the evolution of the song since then. But just this is what you could, could do in a week if you had the right amount of pain on board,
2: apparently. <laughs> what a good life. Sick of my scheming and costly mistakes I was losing my business and the parts that I'd break I got sober as a mountain And my river turned cool I'd make it up to you, mama But you're leaving this fooling home and I used to dream Getting up at dawn, we'd have chickens in the pen and some goats in the lawn and some trees, worms in the pail and my heart on my sleeve and my love. Now and me I'm sick Pain in my belly It is the reckoning stick And I call up my daughter And we cry ourselves Clear it's forgiveness And grace And I wish you were here at all Last thing I said I was coming on about a sweet summer just like the sun while juice from that fruit all oh, down my face. There is a
0: Alright, I can listen, listen to this I'm, i I'm actually tuned in to the live streams you're doing. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But let's go back to this song. Um this wow. I mean, this is about your dad. This is about not the perfect dad story. And, uh, you know, we've always were happy. Uh, this is a fabulous, fabulous insight into your life. So share a little bit about uh, how this song came to be other than the prompt and what it meant to you and how it's evolved.
1: Yeah. So the, the prompt was satisfied. And what I remember from... uh my final conversations with my dad is, is, uh, he had cancer. He had esophageal cancer. It was quite painful and it had spread. Um, and it was really diagnosed quite late, you know, like stage four, I think. And so he didn't really stand a chance. And, um, but in our, and we had been operating at arm's length for years, you know, good with phone, good with email, but just seeing each other, you know, something happened and, and, uh, too much alike probably. And so, But in our last really lucid conversation, he was just going on and on about this peach that he was eating, you know, how the the juice was like literally, I mean, just like the song says, it was dripping down his face and he was like talking about the texture of the skin and the color of the meat of it. And, you know, I heard him calling out to his girlfriend to bring him some ice cream so that he wouldn't miss a drop. Like he just wanted to savor the experience and his presence in that moment was so moving to me. and it was so different from how he had been, you know, for the whole rest of his life. And so I I think this is the gift that, that, you know, terminal illness gives us, you know, when we really know that the end is coming, when we really know it in a deep way. Um, And so when, when I heard satisfied, it was the first thing I thought of my dad with his peach, but then I had to reconcile like really the, I wasn't going to write a rosy song about a relationship that just wasn't rosy, you know, I mean, it was complicated. Like so many relationships are, he gave me my music. He played guitars. We sang together when I was young, but he was also, he was alcoholic. He's, he struggled with that. And, um, you know, his, his parents had divorced. And so I think he just, you know, there's a legacy of pain that comes on down and, and, you know, he suffered and he passed on that suffering to us a bit. And, uh, but all of I'm that's captured that in
0: a song. I mean, it's captured the the
1: yeah.
2: the
0: down parts of the relationship, the up parts, the the moments that he could savor uh, at the end, and mm-hmm. a place of I think uh, some level of peace for you about it is reflected mm-hmm. in the song. It's it's not a perfect picture, but it it ends with enough peace for all of us to maintain some hope. Um, I, I shared the song with my kids. My uh, my wife Nora died of breast cancer after a season. And so you know i sent it off to my kids and my kids are both musical they're they're incredibly talented and gifted musicians but um they were just so taken by the the craftsmanship of the lyrics you know the the oh. ability to capture the sun in the peach or kind of the just the strength of the lyrics and i think that you know i see it again and again now as so you're doing the real women real song again in this this iteration and you know sharing about a loss in your family in an accident for, I think, a niece. There's just so many of these moments that are shared universally, maybe unique to you in the actual manifestation, but a shared reality that you capture. So are you gonna stay with Real Women Real Song this season? Are you gonna do all 52 weeks? Or when do we have to expect you to bail this year?
1: <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> no, I, I feel like, um, it, it's funny. The first time I did it in 2014, Every week there was a question, am I going to continue? Am I going to continue? Can I continue? Should I continue? I have none of those thoughts this time. The thought now is, what am I going to write for this week? You know, there's not even, it doesn't even occur to me at this point to not do it. It's just to figure out better ways to do it. You know, I am still writing my songs like I did in 2014 at the 11th hour, many of them coming together in a matter of five or six hours or less, you know, before they're due (laughs) for upload. And, and I don't, I don't love that I work that way. And so I'd really like to like spread it out a little bit, be able to ponder the songs longer before I actually upload them. Because right now they're just, they feel like pretty rough first drafts, which isn't to say that I haven't thought about them a lot, but I, I could do more labor in the actual craftsmanship of them, I think. So, so when you um, do the good would, life,
0: for example, on Real Women, Real Song, then after that you've crafted it, streamlined it, and then you put it onto a record, right? I mean, can you yeah. talk about that process of going craft to the to the good enough for record time?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of what happens happens in live performance. Like the first time you take a song out and play it for an audience. It's like certain lines, as soon as they leave your face, you realize, oh, either that's not true or that doesn't flow well. It's not singing right. I don't like that there. Like the audience, even though they may have no reaction in particular, they might just say, I love it. But there's something about pinging off of their energy, presenting it from here to there, that that teaches you more about your song and about what you really wanted to say. Something in your soul just goes, "Uh uh-uh or yeah, you know, and so hmm. you, you make your adjustments. And then by the time you get in the studio, you know your song, but you might not know the best arrangement of your song. And that's when the, the influence of other players comes in, somebody adds a part, and it might change the way that you play your song, you know, in terms of strumming or picking, um, you might end up adding a break because all of a sudden that feels like that tells the story a little bit better. Ultimately, you're trying to tell the story as effectively as possible. And so once you've got those lyrics down and the song is pretty much shaped to your satisfaction, you bring in those other players to just make it that much more beautiful and impactful and true. So
0: let's talk about collaborating specifically with Jim Henry every month now. uh, And you've worked with him for a long time but to create a live stream, which is a part of being adaptive in this time as well, right? I mean, having to figure out a way to still connect with your audience, maintain your relationships, but working with him because I, what an incredible songwriter in his own right. I think uh, the drive-in movie picture shows just an unbelievably simple, <laughs> heartwarming call out to a big family. Uh, and, and a way of connecting at a different time. Who knew drive-ins would become so popular again? Um, <laughs> but anyway, talk to me a little bit about working with with him and in general collaborations with other artists.
1: Yeah. So Jim Henry and I have been playing together since two thousand three, and um, and uh, our shows have have morphed a bit. You know, it used to be he was just backing me up and poor guy listening to my long-winded stories and just waiting patiently on the side of the stage for his turn to play, but now we Like you said, he's such a great songwriter. Um, uh, We're we're featuring his work more. But what we're doing in the live streams together is um, this has been so fortuitous for us creatively, this break and this total change of format, because now um, when we play a live stream, we're playing to basically the same potential audience every time. And that is the world, you know. And so you can't like take this show that you perfected and go from you know Colorado Springs to Fort Collins to Denver and play the same show every time because those are all different audiences. We don't have that luxury now. We have to do we have to bring something different each time. Um, the audience doesn't change, so we have to. Uh, and so this has has inspired us to um, for several weeks. We just focused on songs starting with the letter B, which took us into like. Genre is way out of our uh, comfort zone, Uh, but it was super fun. Um, Luckily, we're at a place where we've been playing together so long that we because of the pandemic, obviously, we don't really rehearse. You know, it's it's a little safer now because we're kind of in a pod together. But um, early on, it was just like each of us practiced on our own. You know, we decided the set list and then we would come together for the show and maybe like rehearse a little bit right before we went on and then and then hit it. You know, but um, the, I think the key to our collaboration is there's a, a deep level of trust, musical trust, you know, and a deep level of listening. Both of us are just, we're like bats. We're just totally in tune, you know, with what the other person is doing. And if somebody wants to slow it down or ramp it up or um, make the solo go twice as long, like we just feel that. And it's really, it's really cool. It's like we both just get on the wave and ride it wherever it goes. So,
0: you know, as you share, I was just going to kind of summarize a few of the key lessons, particularly for my audience, which is so business focused. Right. So in this business focused audience, there is this message that if you're going to form a partnership with Dave Carter, for example, it's really great when your talents complement the talents of the person that you're partnering with. When you're going to go out and try a new venture, there's going to be a lot of failing and a lot of need for courage. And there's going to need mm-hmm. to be people that you reach out to or who show up in your life to kind of nudge you into the slipstream of of that success. Yeah. And about the, the songwriting process, it isn't about perfection at constant learning and paying attention. And this collaboration messaging is kind of the brilliance of unending the importance of listening to one another, forming those trustingships, and then just putting yourself out there. Uh yeah. what, what are some of the lessons I didn't pick up on from our conversation thus far?
1: Well, some other things that I think about are um, you know, songs are mutable. Like um I I heard some stories about Elvis Costello um going back to record songs that he recorded 20 years prior because he finally understood how they went after all this time, you know? And so if you can look at at a a song or as any work that you do that, you know, that is living and breathing in the world, the way songs are as open for change, open for a new interpretation, then you're just gonna enjoy yourself a lot more because if you hold yourself to this really strict standard of this is how it goes, and this is the only way it could be, you really cut yourself off from all kinds of potential. Um, And so I think that's been a huge lesson over the course of my career is just learning to flow a little better and be a little more present with whatever wants to happen inside of a song or inside of a musical moment or in an engagement with the audience, um, as opposed to showing up with this is the menu of what we're doing tonight and tick, 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 tick. You know, that it's just a recipe. It could go well. It could go really well. You could feel like you hit a home run if that's your idea of success. But if connection is your idea of a success and be surprising yourself as your idea of success, then you have to let go of that and you can have a plan ish, but you know, then you just see, just jump in and see what happens.
0: I think that's part of the magic of your live stream. There's another guy that I follow in live stream is Drew DeFore. He's out of the university oh. of Michigan guy. And he and his wife just, it's kind of like almost piano bar, live performance request in real time, it's pretty freaky good. So somebody else to wow. add to your radar of people you track. But, I'll, you know, we had this premise that maybe we were coming from different worlds. I think the world of connecting with human beings, whether it's through the art, connecting with other human beings through the goals of leadership are ultimately the same. It starts with that listening fundamental, and it starts with, taking some risks to expose the authenticity of who you are. So with that, where are you going? What's what's next on the Tracy Grammar? Where should people be following you? Why should this business audience suddenly start hanging out with Tracy Grammar and Jim Henry or wherever you want to send them?
1: Because <laughs> we're awesome. No, because we have fun. I don't know. Because <laughs> you're going to need a break from all that number crunching and, and yeah. thinking. <laughs> And because singing is good and community is good. And actually one lovely thing that has, has happened as a result of our live streams is that our YouTube, our online YouTube community has really started to kind of knit together. And they're all talking to each other while we're playing. And it's so lovely to see. Um, but, you know, what's next? What's next? Well, I'm working on a memoir and uh, thinking about uh obviously doing these songs every week, which is a huge challenge. Um, Thinking about, um, you know, just waiting, the world's gonna open up again at some point, but we don't know when. So more live streams and more planning of live streams, Um, trying to push ourselves into more creative territory and see what kinds of things we can do and make um, that we wouldn't have done if we were touring, Um, basically, because you just don't have time to develop when you're on the road you're be, you're just trying to get yourself from the hotel to the road to the hotel to the venue to the hotel to the road to the hotel to the venue um yeah and uh, I mean that's a lot so and trying to stay healthy of course in the midst of it all.
0: so people should go and check out I'm getting to Instagram Yeah, with Instagram
1: you. is great I'm gonna start uh, going
0: to Instagram would be a way they could find out about your life.
1: yeah Instagram live streams. Um, the memoir that's not really accessible to people at this point, but I am thinking of starting a Patreon um to start sharing bits of that in that process. The memoir is confusing for me because, um, I don't feel like i I have it in me to write a book. I mean, I have it in me to write. I write all the time. I write prose all the time, you know. Um, I've been going off on a huge tangent about my new cat on Facebook, who was like, you know, the shelter hellion, and she's turned out to be just the sweetest thing in the world. And people are very interested in this journey. And so they, they check it out. But so the writing of the words isn't the problem, but just the idea that, that the story is linear. It doesn't sit right with me. I feel like it's, it's more like a, a show or I don't know. Well, you know, it's
0: interesting because I, um, my my agent uh, originally, well, she's no longer doing agency work for me, but she's working on a, a memoir product. Her husband is an agent. And what she does is try to break down that overwhelming size of a book um, and just does prompts, not unlike, you know, real women. So the prompt might be, you know, your, your uh, lunchbox in sixth grade right and that becomes a riff for you to just tell your little story of what that was i can almost visualize mine or the importance of getting one and um whatever that is then you kind of write that truth and there's just a series of prompts that keep you kind of putting it together it's not so linear it's much more kind of just prompting the memory uh, which is at the heart of a memoir
1: right yeah i i I think what happened was the original intent of the memoir has shifted. You know, it it used to be, um, I I basically got the idea for the memoir on stage at Falcon Ridge in 2002. It was a week after Dave died. And I realized that the audience was grieving um, kind of a fairy tale, that Dave and I were everything we appeared to be on stage, but then there was this other layer that was nothing like what people thought, you know? And I felt like, I'm going to have to write a book to set this record straight, yeah. you know, Dave was undergoing a gender transition and it was like, nobody knew about that. And it was very hard on our relationship when we were struggling in a really serious way, you know? Um, and so I love like the Joan you know,
0: Baez song lyric, Honest Lullaby, right? Like you want to tell people the truth, um, yeah. but that there's still something lovely about the whole purpose of the relationship coming into your life, irrespective of some of the valleys, Right.
1: Right. And so, yeah. but that, but you know, over time, and there's been a lot of time, right? It's been 18, 19 years since then. Um, 18 years, and it's like, you know, I, I noticed that I was writing this thing, but I was curiously missing from the story because I would just kept pointing people to Dave, like, this is how he is, and this is yeah. this is what happened next. And and so last year I started writing more of my childhood stories to kind of get at why does she feel like she needs to come clean? Why does she <laughs> feel like, you know why does she feel like she's going to be in trouble if she doesn't tell the truth, you know? And so trying to get at who that little girl is, who's underneath all of this intention. Um, I love that
0: though. I mean, it kind of started external and then you're kind of processing the internal and the ultimate work is probably a wonderful tapestry of of both sides of that that coin. Right. All right. Let's, uh, I went way too long here. Let me do my quick, 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 quick lightning round. Uh, Go to to tracygrammer.com. Check around out on Instagram. Those are all necessary things, but you have to get a couple of questions in for the lightning round. So let me uh, throw up a couple of cues. I warned you about this, so it's not like I'm springing it on you, but here we go. There's a cue for mm, you.
1: Miss Kitty. 20
0: years,
2: maybe?
1: Yeah, and I, I, just, I just lost yeah, her in ahead. December. She was 18 and a half years old. She was a road kitty. She was my BFF and my little cuddle bug, as you can see, the love of my life and my little spirit. Um, yeah, I miss her every day. She's such a good cat.
0: All right, here we go. Next one. It's ah. harder to see.
1: <laughs> That's the Murph. That's the new one. That's the the little troublemaker from. <laughs> That's the hellion. That there she but, is. But you've
0: gone to animal, you know, behaviorist, a cat behaviorist. You've kind of worked every angle on this thing. Go ahead, give me your I, reaction to her.
1: I, I love. She's just and surprise every day. She surprises me. She's so good.
0: All right. How about the word quieting? which came up like seven times in one post, quieting.
1: That is always my goal. That's the first thing I do in the morning is just stop the noise in my head and try to get down to one of those deeper levels. Yeah, that's a, that's okay. a work How about in progress.
0: Ju- How about Judy Ocon Hensley?
1: Mama, that's my mama. She's in Tennessee. And uh, she just lost one of her very best friends to COVID this week. And so um, she's grieving, but she is my rock. And I talk to her almost every day. She's great.
0: All right. So that's enough of lightning round. I use too much regular time for lightning round. Instagram.com slash Tracy Go to TracyGrammar.com. Scrolling on the bottom of the screen if we don't have enough visual access going there. To Tracy Grammar scrolling on the bottom, Instagram.com for Tracy Grammar. Please check it out. I can tell you that those monthly live streams with Jim Henry are a couple of hours of the best spend in a month. And then oh, track and follow what she's doing, with real women, real song. Because I think you're going to see what creativity creativity looks like, even under a time curve. To be creative and under a time curve. Who knew? Um, so thank you again, Tracy Grammar, for taking the time with me today. For the rest of you who are joining me in the very near future. Next week on the live stream, Doug Conant. Doug was formerly the CEO of uh, John's, uh, of uh, Campbell Soup and Nabisco. Um, his book, Blueprint, is pretty powerful um, uh, from a leadership perspective. A week after that is my old improv instructor from, from Denver, Colorado. He runs a company called Bovine Atropolis, the cow town that Denver is. A great improv teacher study with, uh, with, you know, the folks over at Second City, and we're going to talk about improvisation and the willingness to say yes and, uh, and many of the other things that I think if we accepted the opportunities of the universe and stepped into them instead of running in fear, we would grow as human beings. And really just, I think it's a lot about open mindset. Following week, we're going to be talking uh, with the folks uh, who are from uh, New York CARES, One of the biggest nonprofits in New York City, Uh, the CEO who's in my new book, Stronger Through Adversity, is gonna talk about what they did at the beginning of COVID um, and really what we can all learn from being volunteers and committing ourselves to something bigger than ourselves. And finally, the week after that, as we just look out a month is Roger Brooks, uh, one of his books, Build the Best You, um, All-American TV uh, network, he's just a, a phenomenal, thought leader when it comes to personal growth and development. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks so much for being with us. Hey, do me a big favor and like this post and or please forward it to somebody. I'll tell you what, if you forward this post so more people get to know Tracy Grammer, here's what I'll do. We'll look for uh, any kind of hashtag with the fact that you forwarded this, and then we'll put you in a lottery and we'll send you a copy of the new book. So thanks so much, everyone. Have a great week.